So when we were growing up, I remember we would get in the minivan. We had a Chrysler minivan with wood paneling on the side. Yes. <laughs> we would listen to this song yes. in the car on a tape. Yes. Tape. Do you want to sing it? When, when I, I grow up, up I, I want, want to be a mother and have a family. One little, two little, three little babies of my own. Of all the jobs for me, I choose no other. I have a family. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an equal rights amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Election results from Virginia could determine whether a new amendment will be added to the Constitution. All right, with Democrats now in control of the entire state legislature, Virginia is poised to become the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is Ordinary Equality. Over the next 12 episodes, we're going to be talking about the birth, death, and recent resurrection of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's a story that includes quote-unquote founding fathers, an army of Mormon housewives, a cunning lawyer in housewife clothing, a disgruntled college student bent on vindication, a heroic black queer preacher from Nevada, and much, much more. First things first, though. What is the Equal Rights Amendment? It's a simple three-clause amendment to the U.S. Constitution that was written in 1923, right after mostly white women got the vote. The main two clauses read, Section 1, Equality of Rights Under the Law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2. The Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. The third clause sets a two-year enactment period that gives the federal and state governments time to review and get rid of any sexist laws that are still on the books. You might be thinking something like, fabulous, let's get this passed. Good news, it already did pass in Congress in 1972. Bad news Amendments also have to be ratified by three-quarters of the U.S. states in order to be added to the Constitution. And that hasn't happened yet. You may also be thinking, wait, women aren't covered in our Constitution? Doesn't gender equality already exist? Spoiler alert, no. Gender equality does not exist in our country yet. Not from a constitutional perspective and not in our society either we've still got a long, long way to go. For many people, that realization is startling. For others, it sounds about right. Some fear that passing the ERA would unalterably shift what they call our American way of life. I know that paradigm well. That's how I grew up. 
So before we get to the bigger ERA story, let me tell you mine and why and how my perspective has shifted. When I was a kid, I learned the song you heard at the top of the show at church. I was raised Mormon, and it was part of a larger lesson I was taught about gender roles. As females, we were explicitly told that our place was only in the home. As one of my professors at Brigham Young University, which Mormons call the Lord's University, Valerie Hudson put it, the restored gospel teaches me that I will be married forever and that I will have children forever. And the life of being a woman married to my sweetheart and having children forever is the life that will bring me the fullest joy. But my mom was a lawyer and my parents encouraged me to be anything I wanted to be. And so my trajectory didn't follow the normal Mormon lady, eternal baby factory type script at all. I grew up in a small town in Oregon in a very tight knit religious community. My parents were converts to the church and raised me a devout Mormon. Mormonism, like all religions, teaches that there are good people and there are bad people. The good people were pious Mormons who adhered to a very strict doctrine, including traditional gender roles. Bad people strayed from those hard-set rules. So in Mormon culture and doctrine at the time, women were taught and commanded to be mothers, to be wives, and not to seek outside employment. That's my mom, Donna. Unless they made exceptions for, for example, if your husband died or something tragic happened in your family where your husband couldn't work or something like that. There were exceptions. But for the most part, girls were raised in Mormon culture to be mothers. And in fact, I remember a doctrine being taught. The day would come that only Mormon women would desire to have children on the earth. We were the only ones. So therefore, we were going to save the human race, Mormon women. We're going to save the human race from extinction. And so it was taught as a very important, very sacred function to become a mother and to focus all of your energy on that. As with all human stories, mine doesn't really start with me. To get better context, I turn to the ultimate expert on my life, my mother. She's the best. My name is Donna Kelly. I am a mother, a wife, a prosecuting attorney, and cookbook author, food blogger. Mom, would you say your favorite thing or your number one favorite thing is getting roped into my weird projects? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like holding a tiger by the tail to be <laughs> Kate Kelly's mom. My mom was born in 1955. She grew up in Tucson, Arizona. Her family was of Mormon stock, but growing up, they weren't really very active in the church. But she was baptized at age 12, a Mormon. I always knew that I would go to college, and I knew that I would have some type of career, but I was a little confused about how I would fit that into my primary role of being a mother and saving the human race from extinction. She went to the University of Arizona and majored in journalism and English literature before deciding she wanted to go to law school. And I wanted to either work for the New York Times or the Washington Post or some important, you know, leading publication that really spent time covering the law. And then I met Jim Kelly, 
and everything changed at that point. My parents got married, and the Mormon missionaries found and converted them. My dad was then baptized Mormon, too. Both of my parents took the LSAT and applied to law school. My mom scored higher, and only she got in. There were about 12 women out of 300 in my class. I mean, it was very challenging. It was very exciting. I loved law school. I loved, you know, challenging myself, being able to think. But there was always this kind of tension because I was supposed to go to law school and excel at law school, but I was also supposed to be home cooking dinner and cleaning my house and, you know, starting to have children. My grandmother, when we were first married, she would come to town occasionally and visit. And I would, you know, jump up in the morning and run off to school, and she would still be there. And then later that night she said to me, if you don't start cooking his breakfast for him and making his lunch and doing his laundry and doing all these things, you're going to lose him as a husband. I mean, that was a very real thing. She was, she was not saying it to be mean. She was, like, really worried about me that my marriage would not survive because I was doing these other things and not catering to him. And my response was, I... I I think he should make me breakfast and lunch because I'm going to law school and it's very challenging and hard. And that, she just had this shocked look on her face because that would never, never in a million years occur to her that a husband would do those kind of things for his wife. My mom was caught between career ambitions and the expectations of her community. Her response was to try and do it all. That included walking the party line when it came to the ERA. She actually wrote an anti-ERA op-ed for her college newspaper. I don't remember writing it. I'm not at all surprised that I wrote it <laughs> because in those, in those times I was trying really hard to carry the party line, you know, of the Mormon church and save the human race. My grandmother was also actively fighting against the ERA. Similar to many Mormon women at the time, she received a calling. It's literally understood to be a job assigned directly from God, to publicly speak out against the ERA whenever necessary. But for my mom, things started to shift in law school. Every class that I took, women were treated differently by the law. You know, in the early 1970s, women couldn't do things like have a credit card without their husband's approval. Women couldn't control their reproductive rights. Even things like if you wanted to get your tubes tied or if you wanted to get certain types of birth control, you could not do that without your husband's permission. Let's not even talk about the economic inequalities that existed in in those days. I mean, the law sanctioned discrimination against women. You know, it wasn't just the olden days of the early United States of America where women were property and could not sign contracts, could not have their own bank accounts, all those kind of things. It wasn't that. It was to, you know, it was then. It was happening. It was the 1970s. And many of those things still existed in the law. The law sanctioned them. The law allowed them. And so I began to realize that the Equal Rights Amendment would help fix those inequalities. You know, it's sort of like Brown versus the Board of Education. Sometimes the law sets the standard, and then society changes to make things right, to right the ship, right? 
And that's what I believed needed to start happening with the Equal Rights Amendment, is that the law needed to correct itself first, and then society would follow. Then in 1982, the ERA basically died. After a gigantic nationwide battle over equality, anti-ERA conservatives, including Mormons, fighting against it were successful. The deadline Congress put in for passing the amendment came and went. ERA ratification tragically fell just three states short. And I think a lot of us in my generation, we just sort of gave up at that point. Why continue to fight for something that's dead? That's where my part in this story accelerates. In 1982, I was just two years old. Growing up, I felt like my household functioned differently than the norm. My mom worked outside the home, and my dad shared a pretty equal role in parenting. I felt torn between what my community believed in and what I was experiencing firsthand. I too wanted to be a lawyer, just like my mom. When I was a kid, the only whisperings I heard about the Equal Rights Amendment were in connection with a character I saw as a villain. A woman who had strayed so far from the church that she had been excommunicated. She was the opposite of my grandma and refused to fight against the ERA, even though she was told to do so by her male Mormon leaders. She became a national figure in the ERA movement after she had a showdown with Utah Senator Orrin Hatch in Congress, who led the ERA opposition. Her name, Sonia Johnson, was used as a kind of cautionary tale against uppity women in my community. And the church excommunicated one of the most outspoken Mormon feminists, Sonia Johnson. They're interested in stopping me and stopping this organization called Mormons for, me, for ERA. They're, they want us to leave them alone out there and let them get the ERA killed. And we can't do that, you know. I prayed to never become so rebellious that I would distance myself from God like she did. Instead, I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to Brigham Young University, I went on a Mormon mission to Spain, and I married a man in the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City. Still, I never lost the ambition I'd had since childhood, and I decided to go to law school. I hoped my piety in other areas would make up for my sinful higher education. Just as it was for my mom, law school was a turning point for me. I took a class on constitutional history, and I realized for the first time that women really weren't included. In fact, we were actively left out of our own constitution. And that's when I learned that the ERA actually does matter. I'm a lawyer, I'm also a podcaster, and I have lots of side hustles. Juggling all this can get confusing. I need a tool where everything is in one place so I can stay organized and always look professional. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, invoices, all that stuff in one place. It's perfect for freelancers, entrepreneurs, small business owners, and anyone who wants to consolidate services that they already use. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit tryhoneybook.com equality. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to tryhoneybook.com equality for 50% off your first year. That's right, tryhoneybook.com equality. <laughs> 
Special thanks to HoneyBook for their support of this episode of Ordinary Equality. The Equal Rights Amendment should be seen as something that's necessary to get real equality for women. Um, it also should be seen as uh, like a flag in the sand, a rallying point to transform other misogynistic and patriarchal practices that need to be dismantled. And constitutional amendments have always worked that way. They've always worked as a, a signpost for where society needs to go. That's Representative Jamie Raskin. He was my constitutional law professor. Now he represents Maryland's 8th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. I paid rapt attention to the sections of constitutional law about gender discrimination, and I didn't like what I heard. It still seemed easy to pass and keep discriminatory laws on the books. Wasn't the Constitution supposed to protect us? We've had 17 amendments since the Bill of Rights, okay? And the vast majority of them are democracy-expanding, suffrage-extending amendments, right? They're, they've been in the trajectory of freedom and equality and inclusion. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment uh, extended equal protection and due process to people in their states. 15th Amendment said no race discrimination in voting. 17th Amendment said we're going to um, extend the right to the people to decide who their senators are going to be and take that away from the state legislatures. The 19th Amendment was women's suffrage. The 23rd Amendment said people in D.C. could participate in presidential elections. The 24th Amendment uh, abolished poll taxes in federal elections. The 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to 18. So all of these chart a course of expanding suffrage and democratic inclusion, but it's definitely incomplete if we don't have an Equal Rights Amendment. More on that to come. We'll dive deep on why this matters so much from a legal perspective. But for now, just know that my worldview was rocked. I remembered back to what I had been taught growing up, and I realized that my own church, my own mother and grandmother, had helped keep women like me out of the Constitution. And then I slowly began to realize I was a feminist, and I met other Mormons with similar perspectives. A friend invited me to a rally at the U.S. Capitol to resurrect a group called Mormons for the ERA. We reignited that same group that Sonia Johnson was excommunicated for starting in the 1970s. I had gone from steward of traditional Mormon values to full-blown ERA missionary. When I figured out that women weren't in the Constitution, I also came to grips with the fact that women weren't equal in my religion either. I learned about why the legal doctrine of separate but equal had miserably failed in the U.S. and why it didn't fly at church either. So I founded a group called Ordain Women to advocate for gender justice in the Mormon church. As a result, I found myself in front of the exact same tribunal, ironically called a court of love, as Sonia Johnson had 30 years prior. Despite all that praying I'd done as a kid, I too was convicted of apostasy and excommunicated from the church I was desperately trying to make better from the inside. A Mormon woman who was just excommunicated from the church says she will not abandon her cause, Kate Kelly. For months, her church leaders have been urging her to stop fighting. And Sunday, they decided to cast her from the church altogether in a letter her bishop wrote 
You should be excommunicated for conduct contrary to the laws and order of the church. That's the same way I feel about America now. I don't want all women to have to leave or move to Norway or New Zealand in order to experience equality. I want to make our country and our constitution better, right here, right now. I found myself in the same position as a woman I had thought about with fear and disdain my entire life. My interest in her side of the story was piqued, so I set out to finally meet her. I found her in the desert. Ironically, after fighting for it so hard, she now lives in one of the few states that still has not ratified the ERA, Arizona. She lives in a quiet house with many wind chimes blowing in the breeze. We did 24 uh, arrestable civil disobedient actions in front of the White House in a period of a couple of years. We did one, two, three, and got arrested, got arrested, got arrested. And I said, we've got to get the word out to women that they are worth this, that they are worth this, and that this is what women do. Women are strong. Turns out, the woman I was taught to fear felt the same way I did. And she was actually fighting the exact same fight I was generations earlier. We did all these things. We chained ourselves to the White House fence. We sat in the White House driveway. We stopped traffic any number of times. We chained the doors shut on the Republican headquarters. which was just around the block, you know, from the White House. Um, we, we knelt in the street and sang and um, and now and some of these things, you know, when you do civil disobedience, you're supposed to get every teach everybody so that there won't be problems. And they were so pleased with themselves. You know, that's what the women's movement should have done all the way along. We knew that get them to do this thing and see what they're made of, that they're not afraid, that they that they have such love. Damn it, they can't be stopped. So, so they, so all these women, many of those women turned up in future actions, but they never, they would never forget that. I, you know, they'll tell their granddaughters, you know what, I, I sat in the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue for 45 minutes and we stopped traffic. There were many of us and we sang and we sang and, and I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. Women are so afraid. How do you get over it? You know, Eleanor Roosevelt said, fear is our biggest, but women's biggest problem. What we need, we need to do is do something that scares us every day. If you've got a chance to do something that scares you, do it, do it. At the peak of the ERA fight in the 1970s, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets to support the ERA. But when the first attempt to ratify the ERA died in 1982, many of the hopes of Sonia's generation died with it. The gigantic, nationwide, well-organized machine that was the women's movement in the 1970s lost steam and scattered into disparate paths instead of marching in unison. But as it would turn out, the ERA didn't actually die it would just lay dormant for a couple of decades before rising from the ashes like a fierce phoenix, 
right when massive women's marches were taking place all over the country again and around the world. Every time we come to equality, we always parse words. Every time we're talking about someone has the same right as someone else, we're not talking about special rights here. We're talking about equal rights. And as I said before, the trajectory is moving in the right direction. And it's moving in the right direction because every time I have been in a discussion about equality, whether it's about racism, whether it's about sexism, whether it's about homophobia, every time we always parse words about whether or not someone has the right to equality. That's Senator Pat Spearman. She's an incredible queer preacher and legislator who helped raise the ERA from the dead in 2017 and get it ratified in Nevada, the first state to do so in almost 40 years. Due to the hard work of women like Senator Spearman all around the country who never gave up hope, there is a major possibility that the last state necessary to finally ratify the Equal Rights Amendment will do so by the end of January 2020. That's this month. We are currently living in an era of modern constitutional history. Can you grasp the magnitude of what we are on the cusp of? It is no exaggeration to say this would impact every person living in this country. The way that women are viewed under the law would significantly change. When any student picks up their pocket constitution in class to study more about our country, they will read about gender equality. Can you imagine? The ERA is not a stodgy remnant of feminist movements past. It could be the key to unlocking a world of opportunity for gender equity, establishing gender equality as an American value once and for all. To me, the importance of the Equal Rights Amendment is almost more the symbolism of it. You know, 200 years after our country was founded, Finally, we say women are real human beings. Women are equal to men. And to me, that's, that's the significance of the Equal Rights Amendment. In the next few episodes, we'll dive deeper into Sonia's history. We'll talk about how women were actively left out of our constitution. It's a tale that requires us to talk about native history, the slave trade, and what really went down at the Constitutional Convention. Later in the season, we'll get into what happened back when ratification failed, what's happening now, and what the future holds. This story is a wild constitutional roller coaster ride that combines politics, religion, gender, race, and so much more. The debate is complex, but the ask is simple. I have been through a long, long journey to learn about, appreciate, and advocate for the ERA. And if a young girl, heavily socialized to be nothing more than an eternal baby factory, can do it, you can too. As Alice Paul said, I've never doubted the equal rights was the right direction. Most problems are complicated. But to me, there is nothing complicated about ordinary equality. Thank you for listening to this very first episode of Ordinary Equality. 
Next episode, we'll head back in time to examine what really went down when the Founding Fathers forgot to include the ladies. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, with support from Edie Allard. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Equality Now, where I work, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls around the world. The ERA is one of Equality Now's key campaigns, and we are actively involved in the fight to pass the amendment today. To learn more about what you can do to support the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org backslash E-R-A. Women's rights are human rights, and human rights are women's rights. This is one of the core tenets of the Women's March, a women-led movement that harnesses the political power of diverse women and their communities to create transformative social change. I marched at the first Women's March in 2017 because I wanted to be with other women and I wanted to use our collective voices and power to advocate for the issues that we care about and that directly impact us. It was an incredible experience. I was surrounded by hundreds of thousands of other women chanting together. I remember I specifically did a chant with the women that I was with from Utah about the Equal Rights Amendment. And we talked about the Equal Rights Amendment. We tried to get other women to acknowledge and to talk about the ERA at the time. And it's picked up momentum since then. I still feel just as motivated to dismantle systems of oppression that are so pervasive in our society and join the Women's March in their movement for the liberation. Women's March has eight unity principles, and they're all connected to the ERA in some way. From ending violence to protecting reproductive rights to workers' rights, every pillar of the Women's March is inextricably linked to the fight to ratify the ERA. In fact, one specific principle of the Unity Principles for the Women's March states, we believe it is time for an all-inclusive equal rights amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and they have consistently backed the ERA. I'm glad to stand with the Women's March in their fight for Black women, Indigenous women, poor women, immigrant women, disabled women, Jewish women, Muslim women, Latinx women, Asian and Pacific Islander women, lesbian, bi, queer, and trans women. I hope you'll join me at the Women's March on January 18th. Go to womensmarch.com to RSVP for the March and learn more. I'll see you there.